going to be on the subject of radical Islam and resettlement jihad. And we have three distinguished panelists. And I'd first like to introduce in the center Dr. Jack Ziak. Uh, Jack is, uh, uh, is one of the most distinguished uh, senior American intelligence officers who uh, served in the Defense Intelligence Agency and in the uh, and for the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Uh, he, after uh, a very long career in the U.S. government, he founded and is president of the ZIAC Group, which is a consulting firm in intelligence, counterintelligence, counter-deception, and national security uh, affairs and technology transfer. Uh, he has been a, uh, and maybe he currently is, a distinguished fellow in intelligence studies at the American Foreign Policy Council. Uh, he uh, is also a senior fellow at the International Assessment and Strategy Center, specializing in counterintelligence, terrorism, and strategic deception. Uh, he served all together for some uh, five decades in, in this business and has taught here at the Institute. Uh, he has his uh, doctorate from Georgetown University and is a graduate of the National War College. Uh, then we, we're going to hear from uh, Matthew O'Brien. Uh, Matt uh, is a student at the Institute. Uh, he has uh, served as chief of the National Security Division within the Fraud Detection and National uh, Security Directorate at the U.S. Uh, Citizenship and Immigration Service, uh, Services, uh, ICE, where he was responsible for <coughs> formulating and implementing procedures to protect the legal immigration system from terrorists, foreign intelligence operatives, and other national security threats. Uh, he is, after serving in the U.S. government, uh, he moved to become director of research at the Federation for American Immigration Reform, uh, where he is uh, in charge of all of, uh, of affairs, uh, research activities. Uh, he has also had held uh, other positions uh, within uh, the U.S. government in the in, in the U.S. Immigration and Customs and Enforcement uh, 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 Agency. Then. Uh, we are very lucky to have today also with us uh, a good friend of the Institute who has guest lectured for us, uh, Andrew McCarthy. Uh, Andy is a, a contributing editor at National Review, uh, writing voluminously on all sorts of issues of, of law and national security. He is a senior fellow at the National Review Institute. Uh, he is a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, where he led the 1995 terrorism prosecution against the blind Sheikh, Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, and 11 others who were responsible for the first attempt of uh, 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 the first attempted attack in the early 90s of the World Trade Center bombing. Uh, he uh, contributed to the prosecution of terrorists who bombed the U.S. embassies in Kenya and in Tanzania and resigned from the Justice Department in 2003. Uh, anyway, without further ado, I will turn it over to you, gentlemen. 
Thank you, Jack. You want to start? Okay. Uh, I'm going to stand, okay? I find I speak better when I'm standing up. I don't crush my diaphragm with my ribs. <laughs> uh, by way of a brief introduction to what I'm going to be talking about, first let me say uh, I'm going to be a little provocative this morning, uh, still morning. Um, I spent a lot of years in the intelligence community, mostly fighting the KGB, uh, the party, the Soviet Communist Party, the Warsaw Pact, etc. I uh, got in the business of contouring proliferation of uh, weaponry, advanced weaponry, especially weapons of mass destruction. Uh, that was towards the end of my DIA and OSD career before I became a private entrepreneurial consultant in the intelligence community. And I noticed once I moved over to proliferation, uh, there was another system, totalist system, that I had to introduce myself to, namely the world of Islam, uh, because of the recipients of so much of what was proliferating by way of weapons of mass destruction around the world. And it was an eye-opener for a number of reasons, uh, one of them being that I found a close affinity between the style and the methods of the Soviet Union, uh, including the ideological presuppositions. Not, I'm not saying that they were the same. I'm talking about some of the motivating factors and the fact that both systems deeply believed in the core tenets of their belief system. Now, that generated, even back in the Cold War, I experienced an awful lot of hostility and I see a colleague or two of mine here in the audience that I worked with over the years. And the, a general mood within the intelligence community, even during the Cold War, a lot of people on the outside have the mistaken assumption that the intelligence community is loaded with hawks. It isn't. Uh, it certainly isn't. And in my experience, I was part of a minority when it came to the objectives of the USSR, and I'm finding that the same thing seems to be occurring today with the problem of Islam. And along with that is the problem of denial as to the reality of the threat and the deep core assumptions of those we're facing who are making that threat. A lot of similarities there. There are a lot of similarities also in the simplicity, for instance, of communist ideology. Now I know some may argue that towards the end of the Soviet Union it would be hard to find a believing communist. Uh, that may be true in some regards, but it was that faith, it was only that faith that justified the monopoly position of the old Communist Party in their monopoly of political, social, and economic power. They couldn't give it up is the only thing that justified that position. Okay, and I'm seeing similar things. Oh, before I leave that, there was an awful lot of denial in that. We got into major theological arguments. I call them theological because it almost came to that. As to the uh, 
the influence of that ideology on Soviet policy, Soviet military doctrine, Soviet strategy, operations, and tactics. And things got so bad. I'm, now, I'm going back some distance. Things got so bad at one point that then Director of Central Intelligence, George H.W. Bush, convened an 18B team to try to resolve some of the issues, some of the intelligence issues over Soviet nuclear capability and intentions. Uh, I was at that point, that was in 1976. At that point, I'm giving my age away here. At that point, I was in the agency, the DI, about 11 years. And I got heavily involved in that one. And again, it was a theological issue, just as we see today with the denial of, of any recognition of fact that militant resurgent Islam uh, operates from core beliefs, we had the same problem then. And it took an external B team to break that psycho psychological uh, death grip <laughs> on the mind of those people producing the estimates. I read something just the other day from Bobby Gates, uh, who was at one time director of Central Intelligence, Secretary of Defense. He and I were graduate students together many years ago at Georgetown University. I beat him out. I got my PhD before he did. Um, but even he admitted that he had a difficult time breaking the psychological grip of, of the attitudes on the Soviet Union. Let me illustrate that a little bit because, again, you'll see some, some similarities. Or I hope to point them out. Uh, to today's problem with resurgent militant Islam. Uh, there's a writer you may be familiar with, a man by the name of uh, Charles McCarry. He's written some very, very interesting intelligence fiction. He spent uh, maybe, I may be mistaken here, but roughly around 15 years in intelligence and CIA and the operations directorate. Uh, McCarry, in an interview back home uh, in the early 2000s, uh, I forget which newspaper it was in, uh, had said that, you know, I spent 15 years, however long it was, in CIA, and I never met a Republican. Right? Now, by Republican, he meant a conservative or a hawk. He said the place is loaded with liberals. Okay? And, and that tends to form the mindset uh, and the worldview, the German Weltanschauung, uh, of the people who practice that craft. And he said, I never met a Republican. Uh, and that, that's a very interesting comment. So that gets back to, again, the issue of mindset. So, Islam. Now, uh, and that's by way of introduction. Uh, as Turkish President uh, uh, Erdogan, I think, correctly said, one of the few things I would agree with him on, is that Islam is Islam. And that's it. And he was taking down the arguments that, you know, there's radical Islam and then there's everything else. And that uh, what these guys are doing is, is a, uh, a mark against Islam. I mean, these guys being the, the jihadists. I would argue that the core beliefs of Islam are to be taken seriously by us. Western liberalism doesn't determine Islam's beliefs. Uh, we keep making pronouncements. I got into many, many arguments over the years uh, that Islam is a religion of peace. How could you say what you're saying? 
yeah, that's one of the things it espouses, but you've got to get back into the context and look at the Quran and especially at the Hadiths. Um, Islam's adherents take their beliefs seriously and they act upon them just as the Soviets acted upon their beliefs and Nazi National Socialist Germany. Uh, they were national socialists and the Soviets were the international socialists. We tend to forget that. There's the red in the Nazi flag was for socialism. They're you know, two sides of a similar coin. That was a family argument. Uh, Western elites were wrong on communist beliefs during the Cold War in many respects. And uh, I would argue that a new, especially since 9-11, a new variant of the Stockholm Syndrome has taken effect. You remember what the Stockholm Syndrome was? And people tend to forget because that was so many years ago. It was a psychological term for hostage-taking, just like regular criminals, of um, normal citizens, I believe it was, well, it was in Stockholm, and the longer they were held before they were rescued by police and security services, the more they identified with their captors. And we're beginning, we've seen that since 9-11. It's absolutely amazing. The more we get attacked and the more people get killed, the more we get attacked, people who point out the facts of what the realities are, we get attacked as Islamophobes. You know? And that's, that's a typical approach that the Soviets used. These two quokway arguments, and you too, the literal translation of two quokway, is projection. <coughs> So the whole approach there is to shut you up and stop the debate, okay? So let me, well, just to visit one more thing. I remember, and probably many of you do too, Samuel Huntington from Harvard University wrote first an article in Foreign Affairs and he turned it into a book, uh, The Clash of Civilizations and the Remaking of the World Order. Boy, did he get hammered for that. Uh, but the good thing about it was it sparked a very interesting debate. And uh, uh, one of the uh, features of the book, he covered a lot of things, but one of the features of the book was the resurgence of, of militant Islam. Not the first time, but the resurgence of it. And uh, the phenomenon of incessant conflict along the borders of Islam with other cultures and political societies. Okay, so that's by way of a quick introduction. Uh, I don't want to monopolize this thing, so let me move as fast as I could. I'm going to go through the stages of Islamic conquest, and uh, I found this, this particular uh, schema in a book that came out about seven years ago by a man by the name of Peter Hammond. And he, he went through a series of phases, and by way of introduction, he argued that Islam is not a religion per se, nor is it a cult. In its fullest form, it is a complete, total, 100% system of life. Okay? Now, I found that very, very interesting because this is one of the things I debrief virtually every defector, uh, and one of my colleagues here was a participant in this. Uh, that we can get our hands on, who came out from the earliest years of the Soviet Union. And the recurring response I got from these people, whether they were from the Soviet Union or from Eastern Europe or elsewhere, including Afghan generals, 
who came out in the wake of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. And they all came back to the same thing. Why do you people, meaning us, Americans and other Westerners, keep insisting that the people you're fighting don't believe in what they're propagating? Um, and it was a good question. And this, this was almost universal that I got from these folks. Um, it, it has, Islam has a religious, legal, political, economic, social, and, and military, have, has compo these components. Uh, and the religious component is sort of a beard for all the other components. Islamization begins where there are sufficient Muslims in a country to agitate for religious privileges. Okay? Uh, when politically correct, tolerant, and culturally diverse societies, like in Western Europe or the United States, agree to Islamic demands for religious privileges, many of those other components tend to creep in. And that increases as their numbers grow in that respective society. Now, I'm not going to go through all of this. Uh, I'll just spot check some. Stage one, as long as the Muslim population remains, about, remains under about 2% in any given country, they will, for the most part, be regarded as a peace-loving minority and not as a threat uh, to other citizens. Well, let me jump to stage three. From 5% on, they exercise an inordinate influence in proportion to their percentage of the population. For example, they'll push for introduction of halal, uh, you know, food cleaned by uh, Muslim standards, uh, thereby securing food preparation jobs, among other things, for Muslims. And then after that, other things begin to follow. Um, stage five, I'll jump to next. After reaching 20%, Nations can expect hair-trigger rioting, jihad militia formations, sporadic killings, the burning of Christian churches, uh, Jewish synagogues, etc. Um, and for instance, uh, the example he uses Ethiopia. He uses country examples for all of this, but we don't have time for that. Uh, stage seven. No stage. Well, let me jump up to stage nine. One one hundred percent will usher in the peace of Dar es Salaam, the Islamic House of Peace. Okay, that's peace on the terms of the Islamic understanding of their core beliefs. Here's, here there's supposed to be peace because everybody is a Muslim. All right, the madrasas are the only schools and the Quran is the only word to be propagated. Um, Afghanistan, uh, Saudi Arabia, obviously, Somalia, Yemen. Okay. Unfortunately, peace is never achieved, as in these 100% state, the most radical Muslims intimidate and spew hatred, satisfy the, uh, the lust for killing, including other Muslims. We've seen that recurringly, recurringly, recurringly. Um, let me quote from Leon Uris. Back in the 50s, he was a very popular author of a number of novels. This one is entitled the Hajj, okay, and here's the full quote that he takes from one of his characters. Before I was nine, I had learned the basic canon of Arab life, and he's referring to Muslim life here too. It was me against my brother, me and my brother against our father, my family against my cousins and the clan, the clan against the tribe, the tribe against the world, and all of us against the infidel. 
Uh, that's a very, very brief and pointed summary. Um, enclaves, all right? This is related to immigration. Uh, you can find pre-nomadic pre roots in this, going, or, I'm sorry, pre-Islamic roots going back to nomadic societies, uh, whether in Asia, High Asia, or the Middle East. The religious rationale comes later, meaning raiding, the raiding of settled societies. Now, back in earlier times, we're talking about raiding uh, uh, smaller towns and, and rural farming areas, okay, living off the, the take of those raids. Uh, now, we see modern evocations of this, especially in Europe. Intelligence friends of mine have both classified and unclassified charts on this, and it's very, very difficult to even talk about this, even in the intelligence community, because it's so volatile, and the whole subject has been so politicized domestically, it's hard to speak the truth. And regardless of what people may say about intelligence being objective, etc., they respond to top-down guidance. I've been, in, I've been in this system now for 52 years, both as a, 31 years as an intelligence officer, another 21 years as a, uh, a self-employed consultant, and I've seen the influence of bureaucracies. One little comment on bureaucracies, because it engulfs everything we're talking about here. Bureaucracies tend to be self-referential. That's universal. Okay? The only societies where they're not fully self-referential are in totalitarian dictatorships, uh, which is one of the reasons why people like Hitler and Stalin and, and their progeny in various communist countries, I give you Cuba, uh, will have more than one intelligence service. I really should say security service, counterintelligence service, because counterintelligence rules the roost in these societies. And intelligence is a derivative, foreign intelligence is a derivative function of counterintelligence. And so bureaucracies, you know, serve themselves. I liken them many times to, you know, to take a look at um, uh, the Sahara Desert, and, and this is a fictional example. And they're sitting in the middle of the Sahara Desert is a factory with smokestacks pumping out all kinds of smoke, clanging and begging going on. But there are no roads or railroads going in or out. All right? So it's <laughs> self-referential. They re defer to themselves. First loyalty is to the bureaucracy. So the, eth the ethos and ethics of the bureaucracy. Um, so you, you, you see these operations being run out of these enclaves. Most of the major terrorist operations in Europe, for instance, originated in these enclaves. No-go areas. And police only go in there when following a major terrorist event, and they go in with full force of the security services. All right, I, I've talked long enough. A few lessons observed. I'm not going to say lessons learned. Uh, I did a lot of work with the Brits over the years, and they never said lessons learned. <laughs> they said lessons observed because the lessons not, never got learned or seldom got learned. Uh, our problem is not merely resurgent Islam and resettlement jihad. As with uh, uh, other threats to our area, uh, the threat you know, it's not properly identified, but it can be identified, and we tend not to do that. Uh, the real issue is the political and social will to do it.
and the political and social will of the elites, that tends to filter into the behavior of our intelligence, counterintelligence, and security bureaucracies. Uh, and I keep asking the question, doesn't anyone remember what happened in the 20th century? Uh, it's, it's a rhetorical question, but by God, it's true. We forget our own history and we forget the history of the totalitarian dictatorships. And yes, I'll call them that. And, and finally, in closing, let me quote a comment when it comes to the issue of denial of the reality of what's going on. Uh, anybody here remember Herman Kahn, the late, great Herman Kahn? He was the founder of the Hudson Institute. Uh, I, my agency sent me up. He was up in the Hudson Valley and uh, above the Tappan Zee Bridge is where they started. And my agency sent me up there, two seminars, one for a week, one for uh, a weekend. And he was a very interesting guy. He was a uh, big, huge, rotund guy, tall and almost the same width as he was high. Huge guy. Phenomenal mind. And he had this big, deep, booming voice. And, and he had a lot of little truisms that he turned into adages and little stories. And one of them, and I'll close with this, he was talking about the average man, okay, Joe Sixpack, right, whom so many of our politicians deplore. The average man, this is Herman, the average man has no problem distinguishing right from wrong, fact from fiction, reality from illusion. His problems may be in the, may be in the probing of nuance uh, or dappled shadows. However, only a ring-tailed intellectual could confuse high noon with midnight. <laughs> and when he got a reaction from the audience, especially left of center reaction, and they're accusing him, Herman Kahn, he says, moi, I'm a liberal, democratic, Jewish intellectual. How can I be a fascist? That is a very telling reaction and very telling comment from Herman Kahn. Thank you so very much. What's the percentage of the Muslims in the United States now? Oh, it was, I think, about 5%. It's I, uh, now. Now? Any? Yeah, it's less than 2%. Less than 2%. Okay. okay. But out of 320 million people. So. Yeah. But you know, the issue of percentages, that, 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 you know, what I gave you can be a little misleading. You know how many Communist Party members there were, or I should say Bolshevik Party members there were in 1917 of, this, of the Russian population? About 5%. Numbers don't mean that much when it comes to dealing with a dedicated, uh, very, very active uh, political minority. And uh, it makes the world that makes a world of difference. Same thing with the Nazis. Uh, I think their percentages were higher, but the Soviet percentages were down around five percent. Now look what happened. Matthew O'Brien. Okay, I'm going to be even more provocative, um, and I'm going to stay seated because that way it's harder to throw things at me. Um, and the reason I'm going to be provocative is I'm going to try and do my best to. 
uh, blow the myth of the United States as a nation of immigrants out of the water. And I will talk about why and how that developed and what the problem with it is as we go along. Um, but the 9-11 Commission said that the attacks on September 11, 2001 were a failure of imagination and a failure of intelligence. And I've never been able to understand how immigration got a pass on that. Uh, the fact is that it, it was a failure of immigration policy and immigration enforcement efforts. Somehow the INS escaped criticism. What used to be the INS has now become the biggest agency in the United States government, the Department of Homeland Security, and having worked there for about 16 years, I can tell you it does not work as well as it should. So that leaves us with immigration, which I think now is the biggest national security threat currently facing the United States. And why is that? Well, we're a nation with liberal immigration laws, porous borders, and extremely poor vetting procedures for the people that we let into the United States. And whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we're currently at war with an enemy whose culture is utterly antithetical to the Western Judeo-Christian tradition. And there's too much debate focused on good Muslims, bad Muslims, extremist Muslims, regular Muslims. And, and I would posit that the the, we tend to think of the, the Islamic extremist groups as having a gulf between them and the average Muslim on the street as being somewhat like that between the average everyday Christian in the United States and the Westboro Baptist Church. And I think in reality, it, it, it's probably much less significant. It's probably something more along the lines of the distance between your average church-going Catholic in the United States and Opus Dei. Now, fortunately, we haven't had a whole bunch of angry Opus Dei people blowing things up. So my point is, very frequently, the mainstream in a strong ideology that is based on faith and that has totalitarian aspects, the distance between the extremists and the average everyday people is pretty insignificant. And it's also an enemy who is more than willing to use our own laws, particularly our immigration laws, against us. So in terms of our own political culture, we've become anti-assimilationist. We've let enormous numbers of immigrants into the United States. There's about a million lawful permanent residents admitted every year. We have about 330 million temporary visitors each year. Uh, temporary is a very fluid term in immigration. Some of those people are tourists that come to go to Disney World. Some of those temporary visitors are people who have H-1B visas and may spend anywhere from five to seven years working in the United States. Cultural relativism reigns supreme on the political left, which has gained control of the media and academia. And they consistently portray Islam as a monolithic race and place it in the category of people who have suffered historic injustices in the United States. And that portrayal is abetted by the kind of pseudo-scholarship that was produced by academics, I use the term loosely, like Edward Said, who wrote Orientalism. And in our current political climate, being called a racist has now become the death knell for many careers in public service, entertainment, the media, academia. No one wants to be called a racist, and as a result of that, we've lost the ability to stand up for our unique, exceptional American society whenever anybody raises a claim of racism. Now, how does the, the myth of America as the nation of immigrants figure into this? Well, if you define America as immigration, then any arguments against immigration means that you're arguing against America, and whatever you're saying is undermining the fundamental ideals of what we're based on. 
Now, the fact is that we're not really a nation of immigrants. We are a nation that is based on English laws, English cultural institutions, and the, the types of political entities that made England a great nation. And the American Revolution is mistermed. It wasn't really a revolution. It was a reformation. It was a bunch of people who thought they were good Englishmen being denied their rights as Englishmen who stood up for their rights under the law. So that becomes problematic when our immigration policies aren't backed by an assimilationist ethic and we're not willing to stand up for what we believe is right according to our institutions, whether they be religious, cultural, or legal. So that reached the heights of absurdity under the Obama administration, which refused to use language that accurately described the reality of what we were facing. They purged terms like Islamic Jihad, Islamic extremism, Muslim terrorism from all of the training materials in places like DHS and FBI, which is a problem because if you can't identify your enemy, you can't accurately fight the enemy. In terms of Islam, particularly. Muslim immigration to the United States has historically been very low. At the time of the 1965 Hart Seller Immigration Act, which is the act we're currently operating under, prior to that we had a system called the National Origins Quota System. Congress took a snapshot of the United States in the early 1900s, said this appears to be the formula that's working. We're going to put quotas on admission to the United States from each country so that we maintain more or less the ethnic balance that we have in the United States right now. Currently, that's derided as racist. On the other hand, it actually seemed to work because you had groups of people who were interested in assimilating people from the old country and they in fact did that. They helped each other find jobs, learn English, so on and so forth. We've largely lost that now for a sort of ethnic balkanization where people tend to live in communities that reflect the, the folkways and the cultural mores of where they came from states. So at the time that Hard Seller was enacted, there were about 100,000 to 150,000 Muslims in the United States. And the population consisted mostly of well-assimilated descendants of individuals who immigrated here shortly before and after the Civil War in search of agricultural employment and refugees from the Soviet bloc. After the enactment of Hart Seller, the numbers increased, but they still weren't large. It was more or less a trickle. And then we come to an interesting problem that we have here in the United States. We tend to get involved in conflicts in far-flung places. Most of the time, these are conflicts where we are dedicated to correcting whatever problem we have encountered, and we think it's worth expending U.S. blood and treasure to do that. The problem is, after we finish and leave, we tend to import the problem into the United States by admitting huge numbers of refugees that come from those countries. Uh, the only notable exception was the Korean War, where most of the Koreans that were admitted to the United States in the wake of the war were war brides. But in every other major conflict, we've had huge numbers of refugees. So in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, we begin to accept an increasing number of Muslims that peaks with a record 38,950 Muslim refugees. That was just refugees in 2016. So since the September 11th attacks, the U.S. has accepted more than 2 million lawful permanent residents, asylees, and refugees from Muslim-majority countries. Now, a rational person might ask, since we've had a large number of instances of Muslims expressing their desire to kill us one and all, we would go letting 2 million of them into the United States. And I don't think there's anything inherently racist about that. It's just simply good geopolitics. Um, if it was communists or Nazis, no one would second guess the logic at all. 
And if you look at the, the cultural effects of that, in 1965, there are approximately 105 mosques in the United States. There's now roughly 2,300. Now, that's dwarfed by the numbers of the smallest denominations of Christian churches, but it does denote that there's a cultural change going on. And the mosques were started by people who are willing to fight for their rights under U.S. law to pursue their religious beliefs, witness the 9-11 attack site mosque. So, how does this affect us from a, a national security point? Well, there's a debate among scholars as to whether Islam incorporates a philosophy of invasion by immigration known as Hijra. There's debates, as I mentioned before, about you know who's an extremist, who isn't. It doesn't really matter. And there's a fantastic quote from Edward J. Erler of the Claremont Institute. He once remarked that uncontrolled mass migration can result in a democratic ship that is every bit as fatal to a civilization as a violent invasion. One thing is certain, we've flung our doors wide open to people who are nearly impossible to vet because the largest numbers of them are coming from societies that have failed. Um, their countries, in a lot of cases, don't keep records. If they do have records, the integrity of any extant records is questionable. And in a lot of cases, their governments won't cooperate with us to facilitate good vetting. Now, the result of this is since 9-11, there have been at least 60 Islamic attacks on U.S. soil. At least 11 of those were perpetrated by recent immigrants to the U.S. Now, People who are pro-immigration love to point out that roughly 49 of those attacks could, attacks could be considered homegrown. But in, in most cases, they involve first or second generation immigrants who were radicalized by more recent immigrants. Meanwhile, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, published a strategic plan uh, among Arab organizations that was uncovered by the FBI when they did the raid to gain evidence in the Holy Land Foundation case, which was the biggest terror financing case that the Justice Department has ever prosecuted. And there was a document, and it's available on the website of the uh, Investigative Project on Terrorism, uh, which has a lot of good documents on it. And it's called the Explanatory Memorandum on the General Strategic Goal of the Group in North America. And it, it says outright that the primary mission of the Muslim Brotherhood is to wage a civilization jihad so as to destroy Western civilization from within. And it specifically stated that it intends to accomplish this by shifting demographics, using the legal system against us, attempting to change the legal system, and gaining control of governments, starting with local city, county, working up to state, and then working up to the national government. Other groups have announced similar goals. Uh, some of them have announced that they're going to employ a, du a dual-track strategy where they engage in both terrorist acts and civilizational jihad. Now, clearly, this has affected us enough to where, when the with the recent tragedy in Las Vegas, the first thing that the news media and that everyone else that was watching was thinking is, was this another Islamic terror attack? So, as we're attempting to deal with this, people in government have been seized with, with a fit of political correctness. I had an applicant in a case that I worked on who had traveled to Iran, listed her travel on her application, had been there a large number of times, and we were looking at the dates, and I said, wasn't she there during the Islamic Awakenings Conference? And we took a look, and who do we find on YouTube chanting death to America? 
in front of the Ayatollah, but this young lady who had just applied for citizenship. Now, the Office of Chief Counsel at Citizenship and Immigration Services is required to take a look at all of these cases and sign off on them. And they said, well, we don't think we can deny her. And I said, why? They said, well, all the lack of attachment cases are really old. And I said, so is Marbury versus Madison. What's your point? They then said, well, those cases had to do with Nazis and, and communists. I said, yeah, we call them bad guys, and that's what the statute is intended to deal with, so where is the problem? And then they said, well, it's a First Amendment, right? And I said, well, no, it really isn't. <laughs> She's not a citizen. She was outside of the United States, and she doesn't have a protected First Amendment right. You're all correct to engage in, in free speech, especially that antithetical to America, in a foreign country. Now, we eventually were able to deny the case, but it, you know, it was like wrestling an alligator to get to that point. Uh, another good example is the litigation against the so-called Trump travel ban. There are 150 years of precedent, an extension of the, the political question doctor, doctrine called the uh, plenary power doctrine, that all the authority that the Trump administration needed to do this was inherent in the office of the president and in our, inherent in our constitutional framework and how we do things. What's more, the president had explicit statutory authorization from Congress in the form of 8 U.S.C. 1187 subsections 812. Yet the district courts and several appellate courts in, in the federal court system ignored the precedent and focused on complete irrelevancies, things that President Trump said in his campaign, and this notion that somehow you can't discriminate when admitting somebody to the United States. Well, there's a Supreme Court case called Klein-Deans versus Mandel that says that unadmitted non-resident aliens have no constitutional or other legal claims to be admitted to the United States, which means flat out as a matter of sovereignty, if you want to exclude someone because they are a Buddhist Zoroastrian who also believes in Mormonism, that you're entirely entitled to do that if there is a rational reason that relates to national security or the exercise of United States sovereignty. Supreme Court took the case and now has delayed it because the travel, so-called travel ban, which I think was more of a moratorium on terrorist travel, um, has, has the, the date on it um, expired. But that doesn't resolve the question of whether the president has the authority to do this. And this has been part of an ongoing cascade of litigation against everything that the Trump administration did to try and tighten our security. What's even more alarming is that the group of people that we're talking about is fully aware of this. And they're fully aware of the fact that as a religious group, they're protected by the First Amendment and that law enforcement and government in the United States are entirely allergic to delving too deeply into the affairs of any kind of a religious group. That's complicated even further by the fact that the U.S. has no formal definition of religion. So the First Amendment concept of religious protection is something that we protect without any definition of what we're protecting, which unfortunately is a common theme in the Anglo-American legal system, but it's something that has become a big problem now. It's also a well-established principle that the Constitution offers no protection to religious activity that violates our criminal laws. Witness the Mormon polygamy cases, the Native American peyote cases, but free speech protections have expanded beyond all reasonable bounds and now offer shelter to activity that once would have been deemed action as opposed to free speech, and actually been appropriately regulated. So, solutions, what do we do? Well, the simplest and most obvious solution is close the door. 
Now, the Trump administration has tried that. It hasn't worked out so well. But the fact is, with any luck and with the right people on the Supreme Court, that issue will be ironed out and will go back to the 150 years of precedent that supports the plenary powers doctrine. Right now, the U.S. Muslim population is currently between 1.5 and 2.5% of the population, depending upon whom you ask. But that population wields political and legal influences vastly out of proportion to its size. That influence would gradually, ta gradually taper off if we stop allowing our immigration policies to build an interest group that's antithetical to our very core principles. What else do we need to do? Well, we need to insist on assimilation. This is the United States. We have an American way of doing things. It's not in any way unreasonable to tell people, hey, you're in the U.S. now. I mean, everyone's heard their grandmother say, when in Rome, do as the Romans. There's a reason why that has persisted since the Roman Empire. And finally, we need to retrieve the narrative from the left. The fact is that the U.S. has the largest immigrant community in the entire world. Immigrants to the United States are not victims. In fact, they're the beneficiaries of the greatest gift that anyone in the modern world can get, which is the opportunity to thrive and grow in the United States. Don't tell the French I said that. They may be a little irritated. But should we ever need immigration for any reason, economic or other, we're not going to have any shortage of immigrants to choose from because Brand America is the most widely recognized brand in the world. However, the default position in immigration policy has always been when deciding who to admit, what are the interests of the immigrants? That should not be the default position. The default position should always be what are the public safety, national security, and economic interests of the United States? Right now, we're far too focused on the immigrants. And we need to change that, because if we don't, it's not going to get any better. So thank you for listening to me and uh, not throwing things at me when this is a very controversial subject that triggers a lot of people emotionally. Thank you, man. Thank you. Andy. Thanks. Andrew McCarthy. All right, let me, let me just make a couple of points. Um, the... Uh, the travel ban litigation, I'm afraid, has turned out to be a catastrophe if you think about what the point of it was in the first place. What President Trump ran on was the idea of what he called extreme vetting. But the, but the notion was going to be that there was going to be an enhanced degree of questioning and screening because there is diversity among Muslims in particular, um, and we have a need to be able to separate out people who are adherent to what I call Sharia supremacism, which I think is 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 a more accurate description of what we what we mean by radical Islam. Sharia is Islam's legal code. Uh, it's actually much more than that. It's its uh, entire societal structure, and it comes with a legal code. And the reason for stressing that is. If you think of Islam as simply a religion rather than a societal system, you miss the point that Islam is really not religion as we understand it in the West. And the reason it's crucial to, to make that distinction is if Islam is considered a religion as we understand it in the West, then it gets all of the protections of the First Amendment, uh, including on what we would regard in the West as its non-political agenda or it's, I'm sorry, it's non-religious agenda. Um, 
which is very, it's hyper-political and it, uh, it controls economic matters, it controls military matters, it controls uh, everything down to the granular level of uh, interpersonal relations and hygiene. Uh, so if you, if you look at Sharia supremacism as a political ideology in a religious veneer instead of a religion, we have a much better chance under our law uh, to regulate it and to screen people out. The reason that's so important, and this goes back to, uh, to what Matt was talking about, um, most of our immigration law, not, the, not so much the, the constitutional law of it, but the statutory law and the regulatory law, is a vestige of the end of the Soviet um, period. And the problem is that in the 70s and the 80s, uh, the courts started to poo-poo the idea that um, th this whole notion of the Soviet or communist ideology wanting to overthrow the United States by violence. And there was a whole idea, particularly in the judiciary, but also uh, in elements of the Democratic Party uh, in Congress, uh, that we were going to have to learn to coexist with the communist order uh, and that if we were going to keep people out of the country there ought to be a linkage between uh, violence and the ideology and if somebody was merely arguing or advocating communism rather than advocating or inciting the violent overthrow of the country under first amendment spirit rather than necessarily first amendment letter those people should not be uh, kept out of the country. Now, whatever you think of that rationalization, um, the Soviet Union falls in the early 1990s and within about 18 months uh, the World Trade Center is bombed. And we're now dealing with an ideology where whether you think that the violent overthrow of the United States and the communist ideology is an abstraction or not, we're dealing now with a very real threat. So if we apply the same standards that we applied toward the end of the, uh, the Soviet uh, chapter to the immigration threat that we're dealing with now, um, we're in a big problem because we know that this is an ideology whose um, frontline militants have attacked us again and again and again. That's not to say that every Muslim obviously uh, falls in that category. I always have to try to remind myself that the first Muslims I met and worked with when I got involved in national security, were Muslims who were actually infiltrating jihadist cells on our behalf uh, and working with us to translate conversations and prepare our case for the jury in order to convict the actual jihadists. So there, no one has to convince me that there is very much another side to the story. But at the same time, uh, the, we can't, because we would like it to be the case, imagine that the militant fundamentalist faction of the Islamic world uh, is small and insignificant and a fringe element. Uh, it's a mainstream ideology, particularly in the places of the world where uh, it's most threatening to us. And part of the problem I think that, that we also face is, it, as Jack was saying, it, it, you don't need a big population to be a threat. But with this particular culture, uh, there's a real passivity to it, and there are doctrinal reasons for that. Um, so the militant element has always tended to punch above its weight, and that's why it only takes a small 
component population-wise in order to, to agitate. And what they're agitating for is a societal system, which is the core of their belief system. L let me just take a couple of minutes of, uh, to talk about the term resettlement jihad. Part of the reason that, we, that we've had such trouble coming to grips with good policy is we spent an inordinate amount of time, and we still spend it, unfortunately, uh, trying to divorce jihad from Islam. So what we did from the time that, uh, certainly from the time that the attack started in our own territory, but even before then in the 80s, um, was to paint the jihadists as wanton killers, as if they were just mass murderers for no reason, uh, and that their and their motivation was totally detached from uh, any ideology, certainly any re religious ideology. Um, the fact of the matter is that when there are um, terrorist attacks, the reason for terrorism, when it is committed by jihadists, always and everywhere, is to implement and spread Sharia. That is the whole and entire purpose of it. Um, the reason it's important to understand that linkage is it testifies to what the overall mission of an Islamist is. Uh, Islamists are not necessarily jihadists, but they are Muslims who want who believe in the Sharia supremacist ideology, who want the full service Islamic societal structure uh, imposed. And when you realize that, what you realize is that um, terrorism or violence is just one item on a large menu of tactics which are implemented or, or used toward the end of trying to implement and spread Sharia. And one of the, uh, one of the most successful tools right now is exactly this resettlement jihad, which um, I, I wrote a book back in about uh, Muslim Brotherhood ideology back in uh, 2010 called the Grand Jihad, which was actually uh, out of the uh, the memo that you that you were mentioning before. Uh, and already by 2010, this phenomenon was recognizable. It was being pushed by some of the major thinkers. Uh, in the Islamic uh, movement, the Islamist movement, in the Muslim Brotherhood in particular, Sheikh Yusuf Karadawi, who is probably the most uh, influential, influential Sunni Islamic, uh, I, I hate the word cleric, it's really more, the, the more proper term would be jurist than cleric, because what they are is masters of Sharia ideology, and Sharia is really a legal system more than uh, a set of religious tenets. But Karadawi's idea was characterized at that time as uh, we now call it resettlement jihad. Back then we called it voluntary apartheid. But it was the same idea, which was you encourage Muslim populations in the Middle East, North Africa, uh, to gravitate to the West. They're encouraged to integrate, but not assimilate. And the idea is they move to enclaves, which become no-go zones. And as the population swells, what they try to do and what they hope to do is stitch the enclaves together so that ultimately you have a, uh, a critical mass of numbers. And that is, if we want to get a sort of fast forward of what happens if you don't get this policy right, you, you simply have to look at what's gone on in Europe.
And I want to close with this thought because I think it's, it's critical to the debate that we've had about refugees and about visa issuance in general. It is a big problem if we have trained jihadists from hotbeds like Syria and Iraq and, and other places overseas who infiltrate themselves into, uh, say, refugee populations and sneak into the country that way. That's a, that's a major security problem. It's not the half of the security problem we need to be worried about. And that's why it's a real mistake in our policy if we, if we are, are hyper-targeted on jihadists and missing the broader ideology, uh, we end up down the road with a much bigger national security threat. The real problem that we have is the 13, 14, 15-year-old kid, maybe even younger than that, who five, six, seven years down the road is the jihadist of tomorrow. And where does that happen? That is not a kid who gets infiltrated into the country with a refugee population as a trained jihadist. It's somebody who gets, as they put the, as the term goes, the trendy term, radicalized uh, in the United States or in one of these enclaves. When these enclaves take hold, they become safe havens for training, incitement, fundraising. Um, you remember the, the attacks in Paris last year. They had a transcontinental manhunt for the people who carried out that major attack. Right? Where was the guy captured? About 40, about 40 steps from his house. Right? And the reason that he was able to be on the loose for what was four or five months was he was able, without leaving Europe, to, to hop from safe haven to safe haven to safe haven. Just because these places are not populated completely with jihadists doesn't mean that they're not a support network that gives moral support and other kinds of support, uh, whether out of true belief or out of intimidation, whatever the reason. Um, these areas become the petri dishes for the development of the terror threat for tomorrow. So you either have to have a vetting system that focuses on ideology rather than violence, or what you end up with down the road uh, is, is Europe. Uh, and that's why I think the, the, I started out by saying that the, um, the Trump travel ban was a, a catastrophe. The reason it's a catastrophe is that once the administration was accused of anti-Muslim bias, they didn't say, well, wait a minute now, we're trying to get to a vetting system at the end where we can screen out this radical Islamic ideology, this Sharia supremacism. What they said is, oh, no, no, we would never have anti-Muslim bias. And they bent over backwards to show that the administration would never, ever consider religion and that this, and this particular travel ban was strictly put in place because these countries either had hostile or dysfunctional governments and couldn't help us with screening people. That it had nothing to do with Islam, it had nothing to do with ideology. Well, that's great, except if you can't take that into account, how do we get the heightened vetting system? And if we can't get the heightened vetting system, how do we protect the country? So. I really think they need to rethink this and target it at ideology rather than violence. And I, I see I'm over, so I'll stop there, but thank you. Thank you.